This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Leah Sullivan joins us today from San Francisco. Leah is general partner at Fuel Capital, an early stage investment firm dedicated to giving outsiders the inside edge through unrelenting commitment, authenticity, and hustle. Prior to joining Fuel, Leah founded TaskRabbit, which was acquired by IKEA in 2017. Leah, it's a great pleasure. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. You have a very interesting background. I don't know how you're going to cover it briefly, but can you give us kind of the the brief brief path to uh, venture? Yeah, absolutely. So I I'll take you kind of way back. I was a math computer science major in college. Um, after college, I got a job as a programmer um, at a small startup that was acquired by IBM back in the Boston area, which is where I'm from. I spent eight years as a software engineer at IBM. And then in 2008, I had the idea for what became TaskRabbit. Um, it was cold and snowy one night in the Boston area where I was living at the time. I was out of dog food and I was thinking there's got to be an easy way to get this dog food. Um, And so that's how I came up with the idea for TaskRabbit. I ended up quitting my job about four months later at IBM, got the first version of TaskRabbit built in the Boston area, kind of snowballed from there, Uh, ended up running the company for nearly a decade, Uh, raised about 50 million in venture, opened 40 markets across the US, opened international markets as well. And then uh, eventually we sold the company to Ikea uh, back in 2017. And that's just about the time I decided to join Fuel full-time and focus on venture investing. And I think the thing that really helped me make the leap from entrepreneurship into investing was just my passion and my love around technology um, and new technologies emerging. And um, you know, even back in 2008, Really, the inspiration for TaskRabbit was all about the new technologies coming out between mobile, so social technology. Um, and I just love digging into sort of technologies that are staying ahead of the curve. After running a company for a decade, I realized that I had put my head down in one business and one technology for a very long time. And I wanted to find a career path where I could dig into a lot of different technologies um, over time. And so venture has been a great way to do that. Um, constantly learning every single day from the entrepreneurs I meet. And um, it's been a lot of fun kind of uh, supporting this next generation of entrepreneurs build their businesses. Good for you. So did you code the first MVP of TaskRabbit? I did, yes. You did, wow. I did, yeah. We threw away all that code pretty quickly. (laughs) (laughs) I at least got a MVP off the ground and launched, yes, in the Boston area. You know, I'm, I'm curious, how do you think building a company over the past decade, do you think that's going to be similar, you know, over the coming decade? Or do you think it's going to be very different, the process of, you know, going from, 
idea to MVP to proof of concept to product market fit, et cetera? I mean, I think that we're at an interesting inflection point right now in history. Um, you know, 2001 was an inflection point. 2008 was an inflection point, And now we sit here in 2020 at another one. I think anytime we see the market cycle like this, um, it is an opportunity to kind of restart. Um, and I think for entrepreneurs, that means, you know, finding new innovations, new ways to innovate, a consumer that is actually open to innovation and open to changing behavior. Um, but those are the positives. With that comes sort of the, the downside of how hard it is to raise capital, how much you do have to bootstrap in the beginning, how capital efficient and agile and lean you have to run your, your operation. And so I think you know some of the best companies end up being born out of those tough times, 2001, 2008, and today. So as an investor, I'm very excited about it. Um, you know, and I see entrepreneurs starting now um, things that they they may not be able to uh, six months ago, and so I think that's very exciting. Good. Well, I want to talk more about that, but um, maybe we should start out with the the thesis at, at Fuel. You know, stage and sectors and types of businesses that you guys look to partner with. Great. Yes. So Fuel is a $75 million fund. We focused on early stage seed investing. We're pretty category agnostic. So we just really focus on stage. We'll look at a wide range of things. Uh, we tend to hone in on kind of three core areas, which are consumer, uh, B2B SaaS businesses, and then some dev tools and infrastructure companies as well. Um, we like to get involved when a company is raising like Two to three million dollars. We'll write in a million dollar check. Uh, we can lead deals, but we don't have to. We like to participate alongside a syndicate as well. Um, and really, our philosophy is just to find founders that are purpose built for the particular opportunity they're going after. And what we mean by that is finding founders that have that really compelling founding story that um, has led them to that moment to have to build that particular company and that particular product. Um, because particularly at the early stages, in a climate like this as well, it is so, so difficult to get a company off the ground. And so founders and entrepreneurs just have to bust through walls to make things happen. And I think being really passionate about what you're building and having a, a founding story that matches you as a human being is so, so important. And so that's what we really look for. Our motto is we stand in our uh, founder's corner, not in their kitchen, yep. uh, which I think kind of actually really resonated with me. That's something Chris had come up with before I joined. Um, and I think all too often investors uh, think that the value that they can add is is much greater than what they can actually <laughs> add. <laughs> Just to be honest, I've been there. Um, and so, you know, I think for us, it's about adding value where the founders believe they could use support and where they see we can add the value. And, you know, we, we do a lot in marketing. We do a lot in communications and branding. We do a lot in fundraising to help our founders. But we're really founder-led um, by the types of interactions that we have. And we don't take board seats. We don't have, you know, formal monthly check-ins with our, our portfolio. Uh, but we like to just build relationships over time that we feel like are very meaningful and, um, you know, integrated to their needs. Awesome. I've got one to send your way. 
Um, Excellent. And I know we'll we, we actually share a portfolio company, uh, the wonderful DraftBit yes. based out of Chicago. That's right. Yes. Uh, but uh, I, w- I want to hear more how, you know, the pandemic and the crisis is affecting things at Fuel and maybe your your approach to investing. Yeah, you know, um, I think for us at Fuel, two months ago when this all hit, it, we kind of went into triage mode and we looked at the portfolio and we talked to the majority of companies. Uh, we talked to the founders, just try to get a sense of where they're at where their cash flow is, what is their runway, what is their burn, sort of like, what are the vital signs, right, of these companies, kind of like you're triaging, you know, in a, in a hospital environment. And what we're telling our founders is, you know, have two to three years of runway of cash in the bank. If you can't do that, can you get to profitability? If you can't do that and you need to raise money, then it's going to be really tough. Um, you know, we have done some bridge rounds for companies that we really believe are going to be able to grow sustainably um, through this time, through this recession that we're hitting. But I think, you know, the number one thing is like, as a CEO, don't run out of cash. Um, and so finding out, figuring out ways that uh, companies can extend their runways two to three years, run more sustainably is like one key thing. You know, the other thing is just around looking at projections. I think it, it, it's hard. It's difficult as a founder to look at your business and say, okay, overnight, everything that I thought I knew about my company and that I was projecting forward has to change. Yep. And so, you know, cutting revenue in half, it's easy to say, but like really understanding where your customer is going to be over this crisis and then coming out of this crisis. And then in the next year and two years is going to be very different than where you thought they were going to be six months ago. Um, And so just helping founders work through that as well. So a lot of triage within the portfolio. Um, We are still doing external investing as well. We're actually in the middle of closing a deal right now. Um, Very timely. Um, in the um, health space and virus detection, actually. Um, And this is a deal that kind of came in the very, I think, the very beginning of sort of the shelter in place. And, um, you know, it came in through another co-investor that's involved in the deal, but we're actually stepped up and we're leading it. So we're really excited about, I mean, I think this is a great example of partnering with a founder who, you know, is building like, right in the midst of chaos and we believe has a solution that will help bring people out of that. Um, so still a lot of sourcing, a lot of calls um, with entrepreneurs. But again, like for me as an investor, I see this as a time um, that is an opportunity to really innovate. And I think the key is, is as a founder, you've just really, you've really got to have that passion and that purpose to mm-hmm. be able to operate through this tough time. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, been seeing a lot of conversations on Twitter. Um, Kate Clark was talking a few weeks ago about how some founders are using this crisis as an excuse to give up. Um, Because, you know, my assumption would be maybe they don't have that purpose in the startup that they founded. Um, Yeah, you know, and and my take on that is like not every company should keep going right now, right? Like not every founder should keep going, and I see it less as founders making excuses. And I see it more as founders just looking at the reality of the situation. If you're brave enough to look at your situation and say like, one, maybe I'm not cut out for this. That's okay. Two, like maybe I don't have the cash and the runway and the capital to make it through this. 
Okay, that's tough. Um, but I think it's good to realize that or sooner rather than later. And then three, you know, looking at your product and your offering and saying, you know what? What I was building just isn't as applicable anymore. It just doesn't apply. The consumer's changed, just changing is is gonna be in a totally different place than where I thought. And guess what? Maybe I'm not interested in following that new consumer. I think that's all okay. Um, so I, I my take might be slightly different. I don't fault founders for quote unquote giving up, you know, during this time. I think, you know, having a healthy dose of reality and being really honest with yourself as a founder and as a person and your investors, I think that's the most important thing you can do. Great. Yeah, you mentioned runway before. So I, I imagine when you're putting together a new deal, are you suggesting, you know, longer than 18 months? Because there's a lot of differing view, viewpoints. I mean, there was a Twitter discussion yesterday. There's probably 25 investors that are suggesting more than 18 months, you know, 24 plus. And then, you know, Hunter Walk and Charles Hudson were both very vocal. Nope, no changes in runway, still 12 to 18 months. Uh, they should be, be be able to execute with that amount of runway. Uh, and so they're not suggesting any change. So, you know, where do you guys fall? I mean, I can tell you what I saw happen in 2008. And uh, that was a very tough time to raise money. I ended up uh, trying to raise money in September of 2008, getting a very tiny angel round done in March of 2009, $150,000. And then finally getting a full seed round done in October of 2009. Wow. So really about 18 months later um, of me bootstrapping, maxing out credit cards um, to get that first capital in. So I think it depends. I mean, if you're a first time founder with no network and you're trying to break through like I was, like take as much money as you can get. And it, it's not going to be easy. Um you know, we then operated with that million dollars of capital. I mean, we could have operated on that for years the way I was running the company because I was so used to bootstrapping. So I kind of think that's the key. I mean, we're going into a, a phase right now that is going to be more uh, bootstrap focused. It's going to be more lean. I do think two years plus of runway absolutely um, is critical to have in the bank. If you don't have that, does that mean all bets are off? No, but it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. Um, and maybe there will be some exceptions to that rule. Don't want to run out of fuel. You do not <laughs> want to run out of fuel. That's uh, why we exist. Yeah. So, so Leah, you know, this crisis has had a pretty profound impact on the sharing economy, gig economy, independent economy. Uh, as, as someone with real hands-on experience working in that space, you know, what have been your observations? So it's an incredibly exciting time, actually, to think about where this uh, independent economy is going. And I kind of prefer that term independent economy, because I think what we're seeing happen now is the evolution of this future of work. In 2008, we started to see more freelance uh, workers come into play with TaskRabbit. We saw, you know, these errands and small jobs and tasks. We have Airbnb, we have Lyft, we have Uber. All of those companies, all of these companies started around the same time. It's now a decade later. And what we're seeing is that, you know, the sharing economy, in fact, is not a trend. It was always here to stay, um, as, as we believed as founders of these companies. But I think what we're seeing now is this is kind of phase two. This is the next evolution. These independent workers are really at the front lines um, and are so critical 
to uh, making our communities work. They're essential workers. They're out there. They're independent. Um, and they're they're really tying together the communities with their needs and the services um, that aren't being met in other ways. So clearly it's critical, um, this whole workforce. I think some um, you know innovations and evolutions we'll start to see is really the focus on that independent worker. So as an example, we invested in a company called Dumpling which on the surface looks like just, you know, um, grocery delivery, you know, concierge grocery delivery, kind of like Instacart. But the focus from the very beginning, and we did this investment, you know, late last year, is 100% on the shoppers, on the supply base, on understanding what tools need to be built out to make those people successful, to make them their own entrepreneurs, to build out their own book of business, um, and really put the power in their hands. And I think now we're starting to see how important that is because these independent workers are so critical to all of our needs. And we'll start to see a shift, I think, in marketplace dynamics where there is more of a focus on supply, um, empowering more uh, supply side tools and platforms and dynamics to make those people more successful. Did you build the supply side first at, at TaskRabbit? We did. We we kind of always had this philosophy. You know, it, it's completely, you know, sort of exacerbated today and has really shed a light on its importance. But it was always our philosophy that without the supply side being successful, you know, the whole marketplace isn't successful. Um, and, you know, for instance, we always let our suppliers set their own hourly rates set um, and pick clients they wanted to work for, pick the jobs they wanted to do. We never just assigned, you know, tasks. So that was an important philosophy that we always followed, but it wasn't the norm. I think now that becomes the norm and continues to evolve even further. Was that like a, a gut instinct oh. for, for you guys to focus on that side of the market? Or was that, you know, based on some research and some market knowledge that you had acquired, you know, in the early days? Yeah, um, a little bit of both, I would say. I mean, I always had a strong belief that what we were building was changing the future of work, right? And to change the future of work, it really, you have to focus on the people that are working. Um, and so I always wanted to do more at TaskRabbit with that. Um, I always felt like there was so much more room and opportunity in the platform to build out more tools, to really focus on the supply side. But in running a marketplace business, particularly a first generation service marketplace like we built, you know, there's always supply and demand dynamics and just kind of getting the company to scale. So it was sort of a, an early instinct and philosophy from the beginning. It certainly was validated as we continued to scale, but I never felt like we had enough time to really build out that full vision the way I can see sort of these phase two companies like Dumpling being able to tackle it today. Interesting. Well, I, I want to talk more about marketplaces and dive in there. But before we do, you know, can we get your sense for what opportunities might arise, you know, post COVID given these, you know, major changes to consumer, consumer behavior and routines and um, everything that's come about amidst the, uh, you know, shelter in place and quarantines? Yeah, I mean, I just think there's huge opportunities for innovation in areas that, um, you know, have been a little bit more nascent. Um, you know, one thing as when I joined the Zoom, I was telling you, I have a six-year-old and three-year-old. 
both doing online learning, both on Zoom calls right now with their teachers. And it's like the whole online learning system, particularly for elementary education, like it just there hasn't been a lot of investment that's gone into it, a lot of innovation that's gone into it. I mean, my daughter who's in kindergarten uses like six to eight different apps every day. Um, and so there's certainly an opportunity in online learning, distance learning, remote education, I think. Um, you know, it's we'll never learn the same way again um, after having gone through this experience with our children. Um, we'll always wonder what they're doing in school. I mean, I was so used to kind of dropping her off and her having her school day and me not really knowing what went on. And now it's like I'm involved in every single assignment and activity. <laughs> um, you know, there's just kind of a difference there, I think, in expectations that are being set for consumers and for parents, frankly. Um, just like we'll never sort of learn the way the same way again. I don't think we'll ever work the same way again. All of the remote uh, work that's happening and all of the, you know, um, conferences that we're having on Zoom on a daily basis um, you know, remote work has never been pressure tested the way it is today. Yeah. And I think, you know, we have a baseline functionality that sort of works, but the innovations that are going to come out of this time to just really improve um, our interactions for working remotely and our collaborations, I think that's a huge area for innovation and opportunity. Um, other opportunities in digital health, of course, telemedicine, um, new innovations around healthy environments, biomedicine. I mean, there's so much. Um, and I have to say, you know, at Fuel, we've been sort of hesitant to focus on things like ed tech or health tech for a couple of reasons. You know, in ed tech, the multiples we see at exit, you know, weren't really as high as some other areas in consumer and in SaaS and infrastructure. And so it tended not to be a focus area. I think we'll see those multiples, those valuations, you know, those exits change. Um, you know, for digital health, we felt like, oh, this isn't really an area we have expertise in. We don't really have anyone on the team that has invested in digital health, that has run a digital health company. Like, how can we help? How can we add value there? And now we realize it's like, as human beings, right? Like we all have this, this value to add um, and this experience uh, to give, particularly as a consumer. And so that's an area that we've started digging into more as well. Awesome. So, so let's jump into marketplaces for a bit. Um, maybe just to start out, you know, what are some of the, the main things you're looking for in a consumer marketplace business at the seed stage? Like, you know, three to five major things that, that you want to see in a business um, that cause you to get really interested? Yeah, I think for a marketplace business, there are some core uh, foundational pieces. And I, I wrote this article, it was probably a couple of years ago now, about the anatomy of a marketplace and how every marketplace has this sort of core anatomy. And then every marketplace uh, business also builds on top of that in, in different ways. And so they're, they're all very different. Every marketplace is very unique. The dynamics are unique. But there are core fundamentals, things like, do you have a quality supply base? Um, and for that supply base, you know, how do you um, actually onboard them? Um, how do you uh, background check them? How do you um, make sure that they're high quality? How do you provide 
consistent and constant feedback after they're onboarded and in the marketplace and operating um, and doing some sort of exchange with your customers? So are you monitoring the quality throughout and continuously um, ensuring that the standards of quality in the bar is, is really high? So there's a lot, I think, on the supply side. Um, there's also core pieces around matching. So in any marketplace business, matching is a big question. How do you match supply and demand? Um, what are the core fundamental fundamental aspects that um, make matches really good? Because if you're not matching in the right way, then both sides will have bad experiences and they won't come back. Um, so you really have to understand how to match and you know, for us at TaskRabbit, that meant matching around time and location and category and price. Um, but for every marketplace business, that's going to be very different is how do you match. Uh, business model wise, you know, I really look for um, uh, strong business models that include uh, take rates that are profitable, that make sense. Um, and so, you know, sort of minimum average we see is around 20%, upwards of 30%. Sometimes when I see take rates that are down in the teens or down to 10%, that worries me. I worry, can you can you actually build a business on that 10% margin? Um, because these businesses are so complicated. Um, so that's something I always, I always look for as well. Um, let's see, beyond that, I mean, at the earliest stages, you're probably not seeing a lot of revenue sometimes in a marketplace business, and that's okay. I think marketplaces are very hard to get started. Um, and you really have to get the network effects going on both sides before they really start to scale and they start to produce a lot of revenue. So I'm more interested as an investor in seeing a marketplace that really understands its customer on both sides, both the supply and the demand, is making strong matches so things like NPS scores, uh, user reviews are very high. The quality is very high. The take rate um, and the margins make a lot of sense. And if I can see that and then understand a path to get to scale, understand a path to get that flywheel going, then that gives me a lot of comfort that it's going to be a marketplace that is sustainably built. You know, two scenarios I often see are businesses that are sort of a precursor to a marketplace. So maybe it's like a, a workflow tool in SaaS that gets both sides of the equation working together with maybe gen two, you know, of the launch transitioning into a marketplace. Um, I also see situations on the consumer side where it might be a platform or a community first, right? They're really trying to build DAUs and engagement and a thriving sort of large uh, base of people interacting um, before a marketplace is, is launched. Um, mm -hmm. How do you view that? And, you know, do you look at opportunities and consider those for investment before, you know, the marketplace side of the business is, is turned on? I mean, that's a great question. It's kind of the question of building community versus building a marketplace. Those are two very different things. I think my main question is, is not every community does evolve and transform into a marketplace. Um, and you have to ensure that you really do have two sides 
that um, are necessary for each other to exist and to survive. And so I think sometimes when you're building communities, you can have communities that are more, um, you know, similar, you know, similar consumers, similar mindsets, similar needs, but you also need sort of that opposing view that opposing side to build out the full marketplace. You know, on the other hand, if if you do have that, if you do have, um, you know, a community and um, you see that different sort of sides are emerging, that supply and demand is emerging, I think that is a great way to start a marketplace sort of grassroots. I will say, though, that in my experience, having built TaskRabbit, I think my most important lesson I learned is that people have to have great experiences in the marketplace to start. And to do that, you really do have to curate a lot in the beginning. And so, um, you know, for a community to build up from a groundswell and turn into a marketplace, I think is riskier than actually saying like, here are two sides that I'm going to put together and I'm going to curate and I'm going to match and I'm going to make sure have an amazing experience. And then I'm going to build up the community around them from there. Like I'm, that's just the playbook I ran. And I sort of much prefer that because I kind of understand the steps to make that happen. Um, But that's not to say, you know, that there's some interesting communities that um, have been built that can evolve into something more transactional and more marketplace driven. And then the former scenario, I guess that would be more for B2B, but the workflow tool as sort of a precursor to to marketplace, do you come across that as well? Yeah, um, I think so. I mean, in the SaaS businesses that we've focused on in the B2B uh, businesses that we've focused on, I'm trying to think through um, some of the marketplace businesses that we've looked at. I mean, there have been a sort a sort of interesting B2B marketplaces. Um, but, you know, I think that the underlying fundamentals still apply, even from a consumer mindset or a business mindset. It's really about understanding sort of the dynamics on both sides, being able to do the matching, and then ensuring that you have profitable transactions. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at Brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors 
helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. What about situations where there's multiple business models layered on top of each other, right? The company might have SaaS revenue plus marketplace, you know, percentage of transaction revenue. Um, Do you find it, is it hard to parse kind of, you know, the signal when there's too many business models layered on top of each other? And it, I find that that can happen at the earliest stages often, Mm -hmm. you know, founders will have multiple business models involved and then it's tough to kind of figure out where to double down and, and focus. Yes. I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I do think at the earliest stages, a a simplicity around business model is actually a good thing. I think founders can get very distracted um, with a lot of different business model ideas and want to test a lot of business model ideas. Um, But I think that really waters down the overall business. And I think you've got to be able to, you know, kind of double down and really dig into what the business model is early on and prove that that works. And if it doesn't work, okay, you can try other things. But I think trying too many things at once, both from a consumer standpoint and a business standpoint, I don't think makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's tricky because you guys do SaaS investing as well as marketplace investing, which is which is nice. But in a lot of cases, there will be investors that specialize just in SaaS, for instance, or just in marketplaces. Then if you go to them with, well, half of our revenue is run rate, you know, based on GMV and take rates, whereas the other half is based on licenses. It's, it's tough to get that pure play SaaS investor, you know, to get, to get excited. Um, and then, you know, speaking of GMV, you mentioned take rates around 20% plus, um, are there GMV levels that tend to qualify a startup to be ready for a seed round? Um, You know, instead of GMV, I think I'm much more focused on the unit economics and what the net revenue per transaction is. I think GMV can hide a lot of things. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, at TaskRabbit, our GMV included all of the reimbursements, meaning if your tasker went to the grocery store and spent $200, that was part of GMV because it ran through the system. Um, so I think it really depends on the business, but I'm much more interested in looking at like, what is the breakdown of the unit economics, um, per transaction? You know, what does the supply side get paid? What is the demand side paying? Where's the take rate in between? You know, what are your cost of goods sold? What do you actually net and take home as a company? Perfect. Um, what, what sort of general advice on, you know, marketplace investing, uh, have you come across, you know, in your experience that was super powerful for you that you have now incorporated into your approach? You know, I think more so than specific advice, although I do have some, it was the, the marketplace operators that I surrounded myself with that I think really made a difference because I was learning on the job. You know, I had never built or worked for a marketplace company before. I built TaskRabbit. And so it was a huge learning curve. Um, But surrounding myself with people like Simon Rothman, who, um, you know, was the, who ran uh, eBay Motors. 
um, and that car buying and selling marketplace on eBay. Uh, Rob Chesney, who uh, we both know based out of Chicago, um, was a longtime advisor to me at TaskRabbit, also from eBay. Uh, Lori Norrington, who was the president of eBay, sat on my board for a long time. These are really brilliant marketplace minds who had built these playbooks before. Um, and what I realized in talking to all of them is that marketplace businesses are really complicated. And you, you know, Lori would describe marketplaces as a whack-a-mole. So you, you know, figure out how to, you know, push down one side of the equation and one side of the marketplace. And then, you know, a big whack-a-mole pops up <laughs> on the other side, right? And then you're trying to push down that side. So it's like this crazy game of whack-a-mole with marketplace businesses all the time. And, um, you know, that makes them really complicated. It also makes them really fun to operate, right? Because it's so dynamic and everything's always changing. And so I think just surrounding myself with other people that had built marketplaces before um, was super, super important um, because of the complexity. And I could dive so deep with those advisors. I could dive so deep with Simon and be like, okay, here's like the one challenge on the supply side, like I'm trying to figure out. And it was never a conversation about that one challenge. It was like the 10 other levers that affected that one thing. I love that advice. I, I, I found myself, we have kind of a philosophy here at Newstack, but I found myself talking to our, our founders frequently about um, you know finding those operators that are 24 months, 36 months, 48 months ahead of where you're at. Um, yes. You know, it, it, the mentors that are 20, 30 years older than you that did it, you know, decades and decades ago, that, that's fine. But um, the, the best mentors are not even me, <laughs> right? I can give you some general advice, but it's really the people that are doing what you're doing that are in the trenches that are a couple years ahead. Yep, absolutely. Um, you know, I've, I've seen a number of consumer marketplace businesses that start with this auction style format you know, where vendors are bidding for consumers business, uh, like Thumbtack, for instance, I'm sure you're, you're familiar. Um, and then they flip the model, right. To more of like an affiliate or referral based model, uh, where the consumer enters the specs for, for a job. Um, those leads are then sent to vendors and then the vendors reach out individually. Um, I just had this experience, you know, two, two years ago for our annual event, I put a job on Thumbtack for a photographer and I got all these different bids and they're all in one place and people were bidding each other down. I selected the one that was best. And then last year for our annual event, I did the same thing. And it was this different process where I filled out all the specs and I started getting emails from all these different vendors. Um, so, you know, the question I guess is, you know, why have we seen this shift overall? And, you know, how does that change the way that you view the business um, as a marketplace, sort of this this transaction interface um, layer? Yeah, well, I can tell you we made a big shift at TaskRabbit. Uh, we started out as an auction bidding-based model in 2008, inspired by eBay. So if you needed someone to pick up your dry cleaning, you'd say, hey, I need someone to pick up my dry cleaning. I'm willing to pay this much money. And then other people would bid on it. And we'd make the matches based on that uh, the number of bids in that job. That got us so far, uh, but the problem with that model is that there's a lot of friction. It's not very fast. There's no way to instantly book someone for your needs. So particularly with errands and tasks, things like picking up dry cleaning, 
you don't want to spend two hours, um, you know, figuring out who's going to pick up your dry cleaning. You just want someone to pick up the dry cleaning, right? Um, so I think that as the consumer shifted um, in the age of sort of this instant gratification, I'd say in 2010, 2011, 2012, it became apparent that we also needed to shift our model away from an auction bidding based model and to be more booking focused and more transactional. I think, you know, you mentioned Thumbtack. I think other companies that were born around the same time have also had to make those shifts over time because the consumer expectation is very, very different from where we all started. Um, and so for us, it became, it became, you know, connecting people in real time to get small jobs, tasks, and errands done. And to do the real-time approach, you have to gather a lot of information up front from the supply side to understand how you can match them well. So for our taskers, you know, we have them put in their hourly rates for 40 different categories. Because if you're picking up dry cleaning, that might be a different hourly rate than if you're going to, you know, install a a wall-mounted television set, right? Um, and so 40 different categories, they set hourly rates, then they draw the geographic location um, of where they're willing to uh, accept jobs from. So do they want to work in their neighborhood? Are they willing to drive to the city? Uh, different times of day may, may, need, may need different levels of detail around geography. Um, so there's some complexity there. And then there's the actual skills that these taskers have. So there's a lot that we gathered on the back end to try to make a more seamless booking process happen on the front end. Um, You know, I like to describe really great marketplace experiences as an iceberg. You only see as the consumer the very tip of the iceberg when you're putting in, you know, your job or whenever you're interacting with the marketplace. But underneath, there should be a lot of depth and it should get really, really complicated um, to be able to make those matches happen in a really efficient and timely way. Um, And so, I mean, that's actually another thing that I look for is like, how much can you encapsulate from the end user experience and actually do ahead of time or on the back end or asynchronously to provide a really seamless experience? Mm-hmm. And so I do think you see marketplace businesses evolving and trying to encapsulate more and more um, and do it asynchronously so that um, you're able just to, to hit the speed um, and expectations of matching that consumers have. Got it. You know, out of curiosity, was was there a healthy percentage of jobs being done on TaskRabbit for, you know, setting up various IKEA stuff? I mean, was that part of the motivation and their interest in acquiring? So it's funny because from nearly the very beginning, IKEA Furniture Assembly was always the number one job on TaskRabbit. Wow. I mean, it was like, yeah, eight years in a row. Um, so... <laughs> You know, in the end, in hindsight, I guess it's not a surprise that we ended up, you know, doing the deal to be acquired by them. Um, But of course, there was a whole long tail of other jobs and tasks that were also posted. What what sort of key advice or or lessons would you give to to founders that are approaching the exit process with strategics? Yes. So I think, um, you know, for founders approaching the exit process with strategics, it's important just to understand, is there alignment around values, company values between the strategic 
and your company. I think for me, that was really important, understanding that IKEA really focused on sustainability. It's a family-owned business. Um, you know, They have a, a really strong mission to improve people's lives. Um, so I think those things are important in ensuring a successful partnership, whether that be a short-term you know, business partnership or a long-term acquisition. Awesome. Uh, Leah, I know you pride yourself on efficiency. Do you have any efficiency hacks or, or tips for investors young in their career? Um, well, you know, I've, I'm young in my career as an investor. Um, so I've been doing this now three years. I think for me, um, you know, the learning curve on investing was just around the sourcing um, and the triaging um, and getting started. And I think... Um, you know, you tend to find a cadence and you find sort of patterns that you as an investor that really resonate with you that you're drawn to. Um, but just the amount of inbound and the amount of pitches that you look at, it's like so overwhelming in the beginning. Um, but then I think you start to hit your stride. So I'm not sure if I have actually a, an efficiency hack or a shortcut for that, but I would just say, um, you know, every investor is probably a little bit different in what resonates with them and what they're looking for, particularly based on their experience and background. So maybe just figuring out what is important to you, what's going to resonate with you as an investor, what are your priorities? Um, and then because it is so overwhelming, um, you know, I think in the beginning, with the number of pitches and the number of companies that come in, the number of founders that come in, just being have those clear criteria sort of ready and at hand to to make decisions on whether or not you're going to be the best partner for them. Uh, Leah, what resources have you found particularly valuable that you'd recommend to listen, listeners? Could be a book, blog, video, article. Yeah, I mean, early on, I really love this book called Founders at Work. It was written by Jessica Livingston over a decade ago. I think it's still super ac applicable today. I read it when I was first getting started. I think for me, it made me feel not so alone as a founder. Um, getting to hear the founder stories, the early days was really, really helpful. So that's one I always recommend. Leah, what do you know you need to get better at? Oh, my God, a lot of things. Um <laughs> So many, particularly now in this new world we live in, I thought it was a good multitasker. It's like impossible to get everything done now. Yeah. Um, what do I need to get better at? You know, I get really, really excited about people. And if I fall in love with a founder, it's really hard for me to pass <laughs> on the company. And I think sometimes that may not always be the right um, decision, right? To, to, invest in in founders that you fall in love with um, if you know the business models and market and all those other things aren't quite right um, but I think I have so much empathy as a founder um, coming and I you know I've been in their shoes before coming from their their uh, vantage point so that's probably an area I could probably get a little bit better at and then finally Leo what's the best way for listeners to connect with you uh, reach out via email. It's just Leah, L-E-A-H at fuelcapital.com. Well, th this was such a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. I know that you've got young ones at home and it's really challenging, but uh, I'm so glad that, that Brian at DraftPit linked us up. And thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much for having me. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, 
You can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.